and welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host. Our guest author joining us remotely from Michigan is Father John Ricardo. Two books, Learning to Trust from Mary, Meditations on the Rosary, and Rescued, the Unexpected and Extraordinary Good News of the Gospel. Uh, both available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, for all things Catholic. Thank you so much for finding time to join us from your headquarters of Acts 29 in Michigan, Father John. Oh, great to be with you. Thanks. It's great. Well, people would have seen you on with Father Mitch uh, talking about uh, your fine work and a little bit about your book, Rescued. But let's focus on your two books. The latest one, at least the one that I had, was Learning to Trust from Mary, Meditations on the, the Rosary. Why did you decide to write a book about the rosary, and, and why do you think the rosary is important to people in the church today? Yeah, great question. So I, I wrote it uh, initially to try to um, help people who struggled with Our Lady. Um, some of us have grown up with uh, tremendous devotions to Mary, and others of us, I think, at least if I'm honest about myself, mm. uh, from afar, I've wanted to have a great relationship with Mary, and I've often looked at people who, who had one, at least until maybe 20 years ago, and um, and kind of looked at them with a, a holy jealousy. And so I, I know a lot of people who they don't understand mm -hmm. Mary's role uh, and they don't understand the importance of the rosary. And I thought sometimes it could be helpful to hear somebody just kind of vulnerably, right. uh, especially a clergyman, uh, mm -hmm. explain that I was there, too. Right. And this is how God worked in my life. And maybe it'll be helpful for you as well. Now, in 2010, you went on a pilgrimage to Poland, Shrine of Our Lady of Czestochowa, and that seemed to have a big impact on you. Why? Yeah, so I, I, was, um, I was fortunate to go to both Czestochowa and then uh, to um, Fatima, Lourdes, and Guadalupe, all within about a year and a half. And um, I'm a huge devotee of Pope John Paul II. He had a mm. profound influence on my life. And I, as a priest and as a seminarian, I always used to hear about him talk about how important it was to have a relationship with Mary, and especially mm. for a priest. And I didn't get that. Personally, I didn't have one. And when I was in Poland, and I'd been there a couple of times before, but I was profoundly struck by his words there uh, at one of his visits back home after he was made pontiff. And he just mm. said, uh, I'm a man of great trust. And I learned to be so here in front of this image mm -hmm. of Our Lady. And um, that's that's actually the, the, the whole premise of the reflections that I wrote. Like, mm -hmm. how is it that Mary teaches us how to trust? Right. And what is it that she taught him? And how can she teach us? Yeah, well, you refer to something you call the school of Mary. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think uh, some of us anyway, not all of us, but some of us have an image of Mary that... Uh, she just knew it all from the get-go and just kind of coasted through life and had mm -hmm. a couple of painful hours at the cross and then went home. And one of the things that John Paul talks about often is that Mary had to learn to trust. Mm -hmm. um, she's without sin, but she has to grow in faith as she walks with her son. And therefore, there is no better teacher on how to trust the Lord right. than his mother. Yeah, it's kind of interesting the way you break it down. You start off with, I think we can forget sometimes that Mary had to learn to trust herself. And then you said she had to trust that God would somehow help her husband Joseph understand all of these different obstacles that she, she faced. It wasn't like uh, one time and everything was great. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, like these are these are these are not statues. These are historical people, right? So imagine, you know, like Mary's immaculately conceived. Mm. Um, Joseph's not. So you're the man. You're the husband, and your wife comes to you and says, uh, "Honey, I'm pregnant, uh, but don't worry, it's God." Mm-hmm. Like, like, how in the world am, am I supposed to imagine that? my fiance husband uh, is going to be able to believe that. I mean, there's the first step in learning how to trust or learning how to trust, right? And yet the Lord does exactly that. He, he prevails right. upon Joseph by means of dreams and whatnot. And then it's over and over and over again in Mary's life. It's right. that same thing. She's running into what's, if anybody seems like she should have had a golden life, it's mm-hmm. Mary. Mm-hmm. And yet her, her whole life is one of confusing moment after confusing moment, and yet all throughout it, the Lord's right. pulling her along, and therefore she's able to teach us. Right. You talk about it. I had to learn to trust that God would provide a job for her husband, that God would uh, provide for her when Joseph died. She had to learn to deal with the rejection of the townspeople, the trust uh, and the betrayal, seeing his his son betrayed, and her son betrayed and arrested, and and standing and seeing him tortured, and then standing there at Calvary and keeping that trust, right? Yeah, I often, you know, in my own mind, anyway, because who knows, right? I mean, if the the conversations that Jesus and Mary had together, I mean, I know the conversations I've had with my mom; she's passed away now, but they were pretty intimate. I imagine Jesus and Mary had some really intimate conversations too. And yet, I imagine Mary at the foot of the cross, mm-hmm. standing with her, with her son's blood pouring over her, looking at him disfigured, going back to that encounter that she had in Nazareth with the archangel, and him promising he will be great, mm-hmm. and his kingdom will have no end. And I imagine that just must have lingered like a taunt in her ears, like how in the world is this going to happen? Right. And, and and so there at the foot of the cross is where she just has to cling to the Father mm-hmm. and to uh, blind faith, not unreasonable faith, but blind mm-hmm. faith because it just looks so hopeless. And yet, of course, it's not anyway, right? We know that. Right. Um, and, and how many of us watching right now are in a similar situation where we find ourselves at the foot of the cross, mm-hmm. wondering how in the world is God going to come through? But God is always faithful. Right. He doesn't always give us what we want, but he's always faithful. Well, I, and I again, like, she can teach us that. Right. I thought this was really good image. You, you said she had to learn to trust when she tried to go to bed on that first agonizing night after he had died, not knowing that anything further was coming. Yeah, because we don't know, right? I mean, we again, we don't know the intimate conversations that, I mean, but who comes back from the dead? Mm-hmm. Like, Mary's not play acting. She's not like, oh, it's going to be fine. You know, Sunday's coming. Uh, she's trying to get to sleep um, after the horrific, torturous death of her son, wondering how this all plays out. And then you know, I imagine, right, so mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the, the saints would often say that it's got to be the case, even though it's not recorded in the Scripture, that the first person that Jesus appears to on Easter Sunday is Mary. I mean, like, who else is he going to go to, right? And and maybe it's not described simply because how do you put that encounter into words? Right. But that's the woman here who's teaching us again how to trust and, and that her son always comes through. 
Right. You say she can teach us like no other, no other because of actually what the trust that she had to display throughout her life. You also talk about it, and then and, and using that as a focus on the rosary itself, rather than just merely mouthing words, we should gaze at the various events of the life of Jesus, asking the intercession of the woman who knew him best. Is that how you found your way to have a, a greater appreciation of the rosary? Yeah, I uh, well, two things. One is uh, I can remember very consciously one day looking up into the sky because that's apparently why we always look up when we're praying. So I looked up and I said, Jesus, I think this is backwards. I think Mary's supposed to introduce me to you, but I already know you. Uh, will you introduce me to your mother? And um, some years later, that, that prayer really came to fruition, and that really happened in Lourdes. Uh, mm -hmm. when, I, when I went to Lourdes for the first time, 20 years after I'd been ordained, mm -hmm. maybe maybe a little bit less, I had such an overwhelming encounter with Mary's tenderness hmm. and her maternal affection um, and the power of the rosary that uh, it was at that point where I just, I, I realized I need to pray this every day and I'm going to pray it every day. I'm going to pray it like a, like a weapon. Hmm. Like that's how I pray it as a priest. I, I pray it as if I'm swinging a mace. Mm -hmm. um, I actually have a, a one decade rosary made of huge beads. Mm -hmm. And, and I pray it to intercede because there, there is no more powerful intercessor than her. She's the one who crushed Satan's head by her yes, right? And so now I, I'm, I'm so mindful of the constant teaching of the church on mm -hmm. the primacy of this prayer outside of the Mass that I just, um, I love to pray it on behalf of intentions which seem hopeless. You also make the point here, and you talk about praying the rosary and Our Lady, you talk about the saints. You say the saints then, those who have gone before us, marked with the sign of faith, are not dead, but because they are not dead, there's still very real fellowship with them. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, this is something of an apologetic, right, mm -hmm. for the communion of saints, which I think many of us experience as just a line in the creed, but it's it's so much richer, right? And I think oftentimes uh, we, we, we can hear as Catholics, our, our non-Catholic Christian brothers and sisters, they don't understand why it is that we would pray the rosary or why we would ask the saints to intercede. And the simple explanation is, well, you know, that's what love does. Um, when, when I know I can help somebody, I do it. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't just involve those of us who are here walking around on the earth because the saints aren't dead. They're mm -hmm. alive. They're more alive than you and I are. Why wouldn't I ask them to, to pray as well, since the great command is to love God and to love your neighbor? And th they're loving God, and, and I'm their neighbor. So let's call on their intercession and their help, because uh, I don't know about you, but I need it. Right, absolutely. Death does not end our friendships or our communion, however much it may change, and it does change the manner in which we can be be experienced or we can experience them. And that, and that is when you're talking about the very real aspect of the communion of saints. Yeah, you know, as a priest, I've buried, I don't know, a thousand people, something like that, and including my mom, my dad, my brother, most of my best friends. And I, and um, I hope this doesn't scandalize people, but I, I talk to them all the time. And uh, because they are somewhere, right? I mean, they really are somewhere right now. They're either home or they're on their way, please God. I don't know which. Right. Um, so I, I, I always pray for everybody until they tell me, uh, you don't need me to pray for you anymore. Uh, or I, I don't need to pray for them anymore. Um, but I'm so aware that between us and them is this incredibly thin veil because Jesus has destroyed death's power. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm going to die, you're going to die, but it can't hold me and it doesn't hold them. They've been delivered from the power of death by his resurrection. And so there is still a very real friendship. My, my, my father passed away six, seven years ago now. And six weeks after he died, I think I was sitting in the chapel and mm-hmm. I wasn't even thinking of him. And I, I, you know, you know, your dad's voice. And I just heard my father say to me, son, you're not asking me for anywhere near enough help. Really? Wow. <laughs> I can do so much more for you, he said, than you imagine. Ask me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if Therese said she's going to spend her heaven doing good on earth, I, I think that's true for all the saints, right? Right. And so that's a really comforting reality. Absolutely. Not just a thought, but a reality. Well, that dovetails into you say the saints are not passive with regard to us. They're not sitting up there right now looking at us looking down here and saying to themselves, boy, am I glad that's over. They're involved. They're cheering us on, helping us by their prayers. That's a great image. Yeah, I was, uh, I'm a huge college football fan. I was watching a college game 10 years ago, 12 years ago, whatever it was. And it was a, uh, it was a night game and it was a whiteout. And so everybody's dressed in white and the stands are bouncing up and down. And it was just kind of obnoxious and the game hadn't even started yet. And as I'm I'm sitting there eating a bowl of pasta watching this, and I, I felt like I heard the Lord say, John, that's heaven. That's what heaven looks like. Nobody went to that game to watch. Mm -hmm. They went to that game to change the outcome. And Hebrews talks about how we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, right? And the the image that the author uses there is, is that it's like an athletic event. And we're still on the field. We're still running the race with perseverance, following Jesus. And those who've gone before us, the, the saints, they're already home. They're in the stands, but they're not just watching. They're cheering us on and exhorting us, not only by their life and their example, but by their intercession right now uh, before the Lord's throne. And I find that such a helpful image because you can do things in, 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 a, in a football game in front of 100,000 people that you would never do in your backyard in front of mom and dad. Right. Because because that's that emotion, the stands, it inspires you and it encourages you. And I think that's what moved Augustine to conversion. That's what moves so many saints to conversion. And it's what it, it moves me, I know, to do things which on my own I could never do. Right. Now you talk about the saints are God's masterpiece, but then you, you kind of roll back to the masterpiece of all masterpieces, then basically being Our Lady. Yeah, I think that's actually Scott Hahn's image that I stole it from, I think. Okay. I remember, I think it was Scott where he, I quote, I don't have an original thought. I just take credit for other people's words. But um, I think it was Scott, he can correct me if I'm wrong, that mm-hmm. that said one time, you know, if you were to imagine walking into uh, an incredible artisan's studio, and, you know, he makes woodworking and sculptures and paintings. And, and if all you did was look at the artist but you didn't look at their works of art, the artist would actually be offended. Mm-hmm. And and, and who, right. if it was Scott or whoever, that's a great image for God. Like God's not offended if we look at his, his masterpieces and go, right. wow, that's spectacular. He, he, he's honored by that, right? And so God is the artist and the saints are his masterpieces and Mary is the best. Right. That, so that's to honor a- her is to honor him. Right, absolutely. It does sound like uh, something Scott had, has said. You, you're, it's interesting, too, because you, you talk about the importance in this book about Pope St. John Paul II, uh, the great, and the fact that you make the point that he was intensely Marian, 
but he was always referring to the importance of Mary's role in the life of priests in particular, let alone all the faithful in general. Why the priests in particular? So I, 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 at least from my own experience, there is a really unique relationship um, between a mother and her son who's a priest. I mean, mothers have really unique relationships with all their children, I know that, but John Paul intuited um, the the different relationship that exists between uh, a mother and her son who's a priest and the mother of all mothers is Our Lady. And so just being entrusted to her care and intercession, I think as a as an ordained man is a is a really particularly beautiful thing. I wear a wedding ring because of that, actually. Right. My ring's for Our Lady. Um, when I did a Marian consecration years ago, um, that this is the sign to me every day of of just that bond that I feel with her and and my dependence on her caring for me and keeping underneath her mantle. Otherwise, I'd be in a lot of trouble. Right. Now, also, you make the point, though, that we have to remind ourselves the rosary is really a Christological prayer. Oh, yeah. And, and John Paul was reminding of us of that through and through, right? I mean, the, the whole mysteries, it's almost like you're just asking, this is again the beauty of the communion of saints, you're asking Mary to walk with you as you ponder the life of her son, mindful that she was there for each of these events, and you're, you know, it's very Ignatian way of praying the rosary, just help me to get into this mystery that I'm pondering, whether it's his birth or whether it's uh, his resurrection, or whether it's the agony in the garden, just intercede for me that I might be able to understand your son and my Lord ever more deeply. And she has a way of doing that. Okay, that's learning to trust from Mary Meditations on the Rosary. And I, I did want to ask you about who's Marie Matos? Oh, Marie Matos is a dear Matos. sister of mine. She and I used to work together in uh, parish ministry. And um, when we put that together, I, I wanted her to do the illustrations, and she um, she has a, a really creative way of doing that. Okay. Second book, Rescued, the Unexpected and Extraordinary News of the Gospel. Now, the Gospel's been kicking around for 2,000 years. What could be unexpected or so extraordinary that's new? Well, I'll put it this way. Uh, pope John Paul said, again, um, in a letter that he wrote shortly after he was made pope, he says, the initial ardent proclamation of the gospel is supposed to be such that a person is overwhelmed and gradually makes a decision to entrust their entire life to Jesus by faith. I would challenge anybody to go to Sunday Mass this week to stand up after the gospel and to ask for a show of hands, asking two questions. First question, how many people here have been overwhelmed by the gospel? And how many hands do you really think would go up? Because I don't think very many. Second question, how many people here have made a decision to surrender their entire lives to Jesus in faith? Time, body, money, talent, everything. Mm -hmm. And if you got a half a dozen, I think you'd have a lot. I, I, I would argue two things. One, that I don't think most people have actually ever heard the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's a more compelling, urgent task in the church right now um, than a really attractive proclamation of it in a way that people can can hear it in its entirety in a condensed fashion, say over two, three, four weeks. Um, we hear parts of the gospel, to be sure, at Mass. But, you know, every educational system, at least up until, you know, higher ed, is always beginning the year with review. 
Mm-hmm. I don't think we ever review in the church, or we rarely review, I should say. And um, again, I just don't think most people have surrendered everything. And I think that's simply because they haven't really encountered who Jesus is and what he's done and why the only logical decision is to give him everything. Right. You say in the introduction, God wants his world back. Who did he give it to? He didn't give it to anybody. It was taken. The creature that he loves the most was taken, right? So so we break the gospel into four questions. Right. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is everything so obviously messed up? I mean, just read the news. Why is it? Why is the world broken? Why are people going through all that they're going through? What, if anything, has God done about it? And if he's done anything about it, how should I respond? That second question, why is everything messed up? That has everything to do with God wants his world back. And I think, at least for me, over the last number of years, I think what's impressed upon me is I don't think most people, myself certainly, um, really appreciated the consequences of the fall. Um, most of us would hear something like, well, the consequence of the fall is that we were separated from God, which is true, um, and that's horrific, but I don't think most people would experience it that way. The consequences of the fall is that we unknowingly, as a race, sold ourselves into slavery to powers we can't compete against, and the powers are primarily death and sin. Mm-hmm. And so the whole human race is in bondage, and that's why Jesus came is to deliver us from this, to go to war for us, to do battle for us against powers that you and I on our own could never defeat. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, that's how the, the the human race gets freed again. It's how I get free again. Um, and that's how God gets his world back. Right. And you talk about, and you alluded to this, you talk about the world crying, and you also go on to, to talk about the problem, which leads to a third fundamental conviction is the church is crying too. Why is the church crying? Oh, if anybody doesn't understand. So here's how I would say it. The, the cry of the world's manifested in lots of ways, most especially in despair and discouragement right now. And there's so many statistics that are readily available. Here's the challenge. Jesus founds the church to be the means by which that cry, the world's cry, could get answered. People could come to know who the Father is, their identity as his beloved sons and daughters, regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. I I might actually say the church is wailing right now. I mean, just look at the polarity in the church. Website against website, bishop against bishop. I mean, it, there's never been a golden age. Anybody who thinks so doesn't know church history. But nobody was tweeting back in the sixth century, right? So you didn't know that some bishop didn't like another bishop. It was just a reality, but nobody was aware of it. Now suddenly we're very aware of it. And so um, it, it, it can be tempting to um, get discouraged, <laughs> to right. be frustrated. Um, to get down, and yet, God's not nervous. Mm-hmm. God's not anxious. I shouldn't be anxious. God, God's not pulling his hair out right now in heaven going, my gosh, what are they doing down there? And he made you and me to live right now at this particular moment in history, and he's got a mission for us. Um, that's the whole point behind Acts 29, is that right. the Spirit's writing the next chapter of the church right now through your life and through mine, and you folks down at EWTN are doing an amazing job of writing that. Well, you talk about, you know, the the parish and the experience that a lot of people realize that parish isn't all it should be, and you talk about the idea of playing whack-a-mole, and you talked about also (laughs) the idea when you got into starting Acts 20, 
night. What I thought was interesting was it's when you took time off, that's when you realized you had post-traumatic stress. Why, 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 when you took time off, did you realize that's what you were suffering from? Well, because most people who are in the middle of trauma don't recognize it at the time. So, you know, we've brought about 2,500 priests on retreat over the last three and a half years in this ministry all around the country. And there's a number of guys who are thriving, to be sure. But but most priests that I've encountered are not thriving. They're They're exhausted. They're discouraged. They're stuck in a system that's often very broken. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're just going from trauma to trauma to trauma to trauma day after day after day. And there's, there's, there's no time to, to breathe, to mm-hmm. think, to pray in the way that you need to to be human. And so it's not until I got removed from that that I, I literally began mm-hmm. to feel again. I mean, literally. Like recognize I, I am I have become so accustomed to just putting out fires mm-hmm. in in people's lives, emotional fires, disastrous fires, that I had forgotten how to be human, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where many of our brothers are. Uh, uh, that's that's why so much of our ministry is what it is. Is that why the book is entitled Rescued? No, it's entitled Rescued because I, I think it's actually, um, once you begin to look for it, it's one of the most common words in the scriptures to describe what it is that God has done for us. Um, people are always like, well, that's not a biblical word. And if you pray the Psalms, uh, it's an amazingly biblical word. Um, it, it's what we needed to happen. It, it's, it's, I need to repent for, you know, what I've done wrong, but repentance is not enough. I need somebody to do something. And that's what Jesus has done. Jesus has has rescued us from the powers of darkness, Paul says, and brought us into another kingdom, the kingdom of his good father. Let me ask you one question on the way out the door, just with with that idea. Uh, Is it in doing a lot? We have a lot of things we've got to do to accomplish. That's what it is to be a good Christian. Is it a a prayer life? Is it a balance between those two? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd say two two quick things. One would be, I think the most important thing for all of us is to is to really prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to help us to know that what we're talking about is true, mm-hmm. <laughs> that these aren't just words. I mean, most of us, again, don't know this. We might know it intellectually, but I don't know it. I don't know it in my gut. And so I- until that happens, like, I'm, I'm going to live in fear and anxiety. But the second thing that comes to mind, my experience, both personally and then doing a lot of work around the church the last couple of years especially, is that prayer tragically in lots of church settings has become an agenda item. Mm -hmm. We say a quick prayer, and then we get down to our business, and prayer shouldn't be an agenda item. Prayer should drive the agenda. I I think Cardinal Contalmesa said to the U.S. bishops that the saints didn't simply pray before they did their work. They prayed in order to know what to do. Mm-hmm. And and the time that we're living in right now in the church is unlike any that we have lived through. And most of us in the church, we weren't trained for this era. Mm-hmm. And we desperately need to just stop and ask the Lord, Lord, what's the plan? Mm-hmm. And then to trust that he'll talk because he wants this more than we do. And so if we give the initiative back to God, then we can start building an agenda based on his words and not our ideas. 
Very good. And we are just out of time. Thank you so much, Father John Ricardo, for your two fine books, Learning to Trust from Mary, Meditations on the Rosary, and also Rescued, the Unexpected and Extraordinary Good News of the Gospel. We appreciate your time. Appreciate you putting these uh, thoughts out in front of our audience. I'm Doug Keck. Don't forget that both of these books are available through our EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, for all things Catholic. I'm Doug Keck. We'll catch you next time here on Bookmark.